Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Paco, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God through the lens of the apostolic tradition. But also, we want to understand how the Word of God, sacred Scripture, needs to be the primary source for our prayer and meditation. So we'll be talking especially about how to pray over these scripture passages. Now, of course, we'd love to have you be part of the program. You can do so by being part of our live studio audience or during the live show, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call in with your questions and comments. The phone number, if you're in North America, is 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, that doesn't work, but you can call in by calling country code 1, area code 205 271 2980 205-271-2980. Now, you can also send us questions by email. If you write to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or you can follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, today we will discuss our Lord's third prediction of his crucifixion, and the disciples' failure of faith. Now, remember, we're going through a book I wrote called Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com, where it is item 81098, We are discussing the third uh, prediction of our Lord's passion, and that is found in Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin with verses 32 to 34. It's just a prediction. And we see that as they're going on the road, going up to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise." Now, one of the things to notice here is that he gives a lot more detail of what's going to happen to him in his suffering and death than he gave in the first two predictions. He was a little bit more general about being handed over to the Gentiles and crucified and died and then rise again. Here he also mentions 
uh, not only being condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles, but it mentions being mocked and spit upon uh, and scourged and then kill him. And one of the reasons for that is these were also points that had been predicted in the prophets. And he is concurring with Isaiah uh, 52 and with Psalm 22 and other passages that predicted these torments would come to him. So that's why he's being a little bit more specific. And he's been building up with these predictions for the disciples to know. Now, one of the problems we've seen with the previous two predictions is that the disciples changed the subject in order to talk about themselves. And we see here in Mark chapter 10, they do it again. So at this point, James and John approach Jesus and they want to know about their status in regard to him. They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Um, <clears throat> remember, these two brothers are called the Sons of Thunder. That was the nickname our Lord gave them. And we talked about that before. They apparently had a certain amount of temper um, when one of the Samaritan towns did not allow Jesus to enter it was James and John who said, should we call down some thunder and lightning on these people? You know, they, they, they had that quick temper. Well, now they are focused on what they're going to get. And they remember in the second prediction, the disciples began to discuss which one of them was the greatest. These two don't want to argue. They want to get the best seats at the second coming. That's what they, they want to be on the right and the left of Jesus, you know, when he's up in heaven. And he doesn't even, they, they don't say anything to the other disciples. They just go right to Jesus. Now, if you notice in Matthew's gospel, it says that their mother posed this question. And that may be the, the, the case. That's I would accept that as the case. But even there, when she goes to Jesus with the question, our Lord doesn't speak to her. He turns right to the two disciples. So really, it was a question that came from them. They just wanted their mom to get involved in it. Well, this is an occasion for Jesus to address a serious problem that they still don't understand what leadership in the church means. 
They haven't understood his teaching. And so he says to them in verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptism, baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said, oh, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, there are a couple things here. First, sitting on our Lord's right and left are not honors that he's there to bestow. Um, and he, in fact, he even takes away the sense that this is the basis for a lot of honor. What our Lord emphasizes is that closeness to him is going to entail suffering. We see, for instance, that they're going to have a baptism into suffering and they will drink from the bitter cup of pain. In the Old Testament, drinking from the cup was very commonly associated with drinking in pain. And there are a number of passages that deal with that. For instance, there are a few passages that mention a cup of wrath. That would include Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, and Isaiah 51, verses 17 and 22. We also see the same image in Psalm 11, verse 6, 60, verse 3, 75, verse 8, as well as in Job 21, verse 20. It's a common image. So when he's asking them to drink from the cup, it's not going to be the kind of celebration with drinking wine of victory or like, you know, the, the song by Toby Keith that you drink uh, whiskey with my men and beer for my horses to celebrate uh, victory over evil. No, no, no. This is a different kind of cup. It is a cup that takes in the suffering and you drink that and it's going to be interesting with these two brothers James is the first of the apostles who will die and of course he'll die a martyr and John is the last of the disciples to die last apostle to die in that sense they're not on the right and on the left they are bookends for the suffering and death of the apostles. So they are going to have that baptism of suffering and drink from the cup of wrath. And this is very much 
picking up on what our Lord had said earlier after the first prediction of the crucifixion. In that first one, Jesus called the multitude to himself with his disciples. You see this in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. And he says to the crowd and to the disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That's the teaching that is the core of his response. And that seeking the honor of being close to Jesus is not the issue. The issue is joining with him in his suffering. That's why he says, we drink the cup that I drink. He's not saying, I want you guys to go out there and suffer for me. No. I will lead. He will suffer first. He will enter into a baptism of pain first. He is what, as Hebrews tells us, the pioneer of our faith. He goes ahead of us and suffers for us. So that's very important. And this is uh, the, the point that he is going to emphasize that's where we have to keep our focus as we follow Christ. It's not going to be going from one, you know, happy experience to another. There are plenty of experiences of joy and, and the love of God in our lives. But because we are in a world that shows opposition to Christ, that we will also experience that opposition. And we should keep that very much in mind. And, and finally, even though they're willing to accept uh, his suffering, it's up to the Heavenly Father as to what, well, whether they'll, whatever place they'll have. We just don't know. Now, what's the reaction of the other ten disciples? When the ten heard of it, this is in Mark chapter 10, verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Probably indignant because none of them thought to ask ahead of them. That's why they're so upset. They wanted to be on the right and on the left. And they don't. You know, they, they missed that opportunity to ask for that favor. Again, our Lord has to address them and correct them. This is a very important part of correcting people's attitudes and behavior. So in Mark 10, verse 42, we see our Lord called them, called all 12 together and said to them, you know, that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it's important that he uses these Gentile overlords. Remember, the, the, the Jewish people were under the heel of the Roman Empire. And it would be just 40 years after this that they start a revolt, not even about 36 years later, and they started a revolt. Um, and the reason was the Romans simply used them to get taxes. They put imposed high taxes on them. And the, they didn't want to use it for the uh, beneficence of the people. They didn't want them to benefit. So many Roman officials wanted to be governors and procurators so that they could get a better job. And if they're really good at being a governor, they might have a chance to become emperor. Or if they were a good general, they might get a chance to be a general. Pagans were looking for political position as stepping stones to something bigger and even more lucrative. And many of them became extraordinarily rich during all this by oppressing other people. Now, what our Lord is saying, do you like the way these Roman politicians are using you to make themselves rich and to get, you know, one step ahead and keep moving forward? Do you like that? And I'm pretty sure that they like it no more than we do. And so if they don't like what the Romans were doing, then you ought not to be like them. Leadership inside the church is not to be a stepping stone to higher and higher places. It's leadership in order to serve God first. He has to be the absolute center of any service in the church. And you do it for our Lord. And secondly, how do I support the other members of the church? This is not only in terms of priests, uh, deacons, and bishops, but it also applies in all realms of life. You don't have children so that you can marry them off to somebody more wealthy and then you get to share in the wealth. You don't try to get them into politics so that you can get breaks on taxes and things like that. You don't do things for your kid in order for your own benefit. You raise your children so that they will benefit from the way you serve them, that they will become themselves fathers and mothers who care about their children. They will become not folks focused on themselves, but willing to serve their family, their children, their spouse, all of this. That's what we, we seek to do. And this is a completely different attitude than the world. And it's very easy for people inside the church to be tempted to make the same mistake as the apostles in seeking position and status. But instead, we have to be there to serve. That is what Jesus leads and does 
end. It's what he calls us to do. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll take a look at how another failure of the apostles in regard to their faith. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Just want to remind you before we get to our next section of scripture here, uh, please don't miss the 2023 EWTN Family Celebration right here in Birmingham, Alabama. We're going to have it on Saturday, August 26th here in Birmingham, right at the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex. That's right where I-20... 59 and 65 meet, so it's pretty convenient. And if you want to get more information, go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration, or you can also call in to register for it. Uh, it's free. It's a good price. But the uh, place where you can call in is 1-800-447-3986. one 447 3986. We need to, to register, even though it's free, we just have to know how many seats we need to have ready and we don't overbook. Don't want to do that. Okay? All right. Yeah, we look forward to being there myself. All right, so now we're going to take a look at John chapter 6. This is verse, and we're just going to focus on John 6 verses 59 to 71. And this is about the disciples' failure of faith. Uh, you know how our Lord had been teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum, which if you ever go to the Holy Land, you can still go inside the, that synagogue. There's no roof, but you can go on the, the, the place of the synagogue. Same, it's in the same place, same place. It's very cool. And in, when he taught them in the earlier part of chapter 6, he focused first on how essential it is to have faith in him and faith in the Father who sent him. Secondly, he then taught about the necessity of the Eucharist. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. So he talked about the necessity of his body and blood, his flesh and blood, in order to have eternal life. And we see that in this section of verses 59 to 64, many disciples rejected his teaching. So he said, so it's, as it says there, he said this in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And this is by that, it means the saying, especially on, script, on uh, the Holy Eucharist. 
unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life. This is the hard saying for them. Who can listen to it? And these are disciples, not the outsiders, not the crowd, but his own disciples. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first those uh, who those were that did not believe and who it was that should betray him. Okay. So let's, let's take a look at this um, in more detail. Uh, first of all, they were murmuring against Jesus. Okay. And they, they say this is a hard saying, we can listen to it in verse 60. And this, this term, you know, the murmuring and this kind of complaining, you should think back to Exodus and Numbers, the, those books of the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, chapter 16 and going forward, and then in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, going forward, the Israelites came up against many difficulties. And as they came up on those difficulties, they murmured against the Lord and Moses. And that's all the more significant because they had been saying earlier, well, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Uh, you got any more bread? We'd like some. Show us, and then we'll believe in you. They won't believe unless they see more signs. Not just that they already had seen the sign of the multiplication of loaves and fish, but they want more. And then they say they'll believe. They're, they're basically offering their faith if you give us some more stuff, if you give us more bread, more fish. And just as then they brought up Moses, now they are acting like the Israelites did in Exodus 16 and 17 when they murmured against the Lord and later on in Numbers when they murmured against the Lord. They're doing it too. So you see that parallel where clearly our Lord is like Moses, giving the truth about God and speaking that truth to them. And that's... Um, one thing. Also, pay attention to the fact that Jesus, our Lord, knew their inner thoughts. They knew what they were thinking. And this is evidence of his divinity. Now, he's done this repeatedly in the uh, New Testament, but it's important because only the Lord God knows the inner thoughts. That's why you see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And then in 1 Kings 8, 39, 
Render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of men. Only the Lord knows their inner hearts. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 11, Shaol and Abaddon, uh, which is a, Abaddon is a name for the place that we would call hell. Shaol would be the equivalent of purgatory. But Shaol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. God knows what goes on in purgatory and in hell. He even better knows the inner hearts of people. And there are many other places like that. Jeremiah 11, 20, 17, 10, 20, verse 12. Over and over again, the Lord knows their hearts. And that's why in John 6, 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said, you take offense at this. So in this, he is giving proof that he is God. And that's a very important thing. He'd already given them one sign of his divinity by walking on the water. And as we covered when we took my book on the Eucharist, in the Old Testament, only God walks on the water. So he, he does what only God does. But now at the end of this whole chapter, he shows again that he is God by knowing their inner thoughts. So that's very important. And then after this, he gives them the ultimate proof. It, the proof will not be if I give you more bread and fish. No. In verse 62, he says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? In other words, the ascension of Jesus into heaven is part of the proof, the absolute proof, that he wants to offer them that what he's saying is true. Okay? So that's very important in terms of the part of our theology of the ascension. And then he still knows, you know, their, their hearts, and he gives them a principle by which you can judge the truth of the Eucharist. It says in John 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail, and the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, I'm sometimes absolutely astounded when I've heard a number of people try to use that verse where our Lord says that the spirit gives life, the flesh is of no avail. And they try to say, well, see, receiving the flesh of Christ in the Eucharist does you no good. It's of no avail. How would you come up with such an interpretation? Except just to try and make sure that you don't believe what Jesus had already taught. Jesus had taught, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life. But if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
you will not die forever. That's what he says. And then to use this, well, the, it's the spirit that gives life to flushes of no avail. It's not Jesus' flesh that is of no avail. Someone who would think that the flesh of God made flesh is of no avail is hardly able to call him or, self, him or herself a faithful Christian. Remember what it says in John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what makes the salvation possible, to use the, this verse as a way to dismiss the importance of the flesh of Jesus Christ, whether his becoming flesh in the incarnation, when he's conceived in his mother's womb, or becoming flesh and blood in the Eucharist is, and you're leaning over the edge of blasphemy right there. You're just hanging over the edge and looking over a little too far. No, it is our flesh that's no avail because, of no avail because our understanding is part of the flesh and it is so limited to understand the unlimited truth of Jesus Christ. But he will fill us with a wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. And that will be the basis for deeper understanding. That's how we can understand the meaning of the Eucharist. So it's the Eucharistic doctrine that you cannot understand by mere human flesh. The doctrine that Jesus' flesh and blood is our food and our drink, that you cannot understand by the limits of the flesh. And trying to say that the flesh of Jesus is of no avail is proof that you're still thinking along the lines of the flesh. No, you have to understand it from the truth that the Holy Spirit gives us. The Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth. And this is something that is very essential for us. Tell you what, we'll stop with that verse there and we'll continue on with this episode next week because there's some other very, very important elements of this. But we should, you know, focus and pray over understanding these parts and see that we do not act like the disciples that failed. We don't know who they were. They went off and they remain anonymous. It's the ones who stayed with them that we know. And this will be a very important part of our own life of faith. Okay. All right, we'll stop there. I want to start off with in some emails. I have one from Lorenza. It says, Dear Father Mitch Paqua, I would appreciate insight on the controversy on the last part of the Our Father prayer. Some adhere to saying, lead us not into temptation versus let us not fall 
into temptation. Can you help, help to clarify the differences and the origins of each? Um, yeah, I think so. First, the words of the Our Father, both in Greek and also in the later Aramaic translation of it, are very clear. Lead us not into temptation. May esenenkas hemas eis perasmon. This is um, uh, something that is uh, very important that it does say, lead us not. It doesn't say, let us not fall into temptation. There's a Spanish uh, uh, translation of that text, no nos caer en tentacion. But that's not what it says in Greek, and Greek is the original, not Spanish. And here's, uh, so we have to stay with the words of our Lord. Uh, That's a very key thing. And then with that, we need to have a sense of what does our Lord mean by this? Well, first, it does not mean that we believe the Lord tempts us. It doesn't say there, do not tempt us. That's not what it says. It's me esenenke kas hemas esperasmon. Do not lead us into temptation. The place where we see the Lord lead someone into temptation is in the Gospels. It's in the Gospels that right after our Lord Jesus is baptized, that the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert in order to be tempted by Satan. Now, the way to explain that is that, you know, first of all, God is not going to do the tempting. Satan is going to be the one that tempts Jesus. St. James' epistle is very clear. God does not tempt anyone. But he may lead us into places where we might become tempted. Why? Well, I use the analogy of a military general. A general trains his troops. They're in a camp, and they practice all the things, marching, exercise, all the things they have to learn how to do as soldiers. But there is a point at which the general needs to lead them into battle. If there's a war, the general leads them into battle. Is he doing that in order to kill off his soldiers? I hope not. But he does lead them into the danger of battle because that's the only way to defeat the enemy. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan so that he can defeat Satan. That's what, you know, he he calls for. And so our Lord tells us to pray not to be led into temptation because he knew what it was like 
to be led into temptation. He knew how hard it was to fight against Satan, and he tells us to pray that you not have to do that. And again, by using my analogy, if a man has been in a war, if he has been in battle, he is not likely to say, oh boy, I can hardly wait to get in there. No, it's people who haven't really seen, heard, or smelled what battle is like. It's the ones who don't know the realities of it that say, yeah, let's go out there. We'll win and we'll beat the enemy because they're thinking of pictures in their mind. But soldiers who've been in battle know how hard that is. And they pray not to go to war. It's not something they just want to dive in and say, yeah, I'll fight. No. Experienced soldiers, veterans, know the difficulties, the pain, the awfulness of battle, the awfulness of killing somebody, having your friends killed. And so they pray that they not go to war. But if war breaks out, they will go and do their duty. Similarly for us, we pray that we not be put into places of temptation, but if our Lord leads us, then we'll follow. And we want him to give us the strength. We had a prayer in the Maronite Liturgy of the Hours today. If you, if you do lead us into temptation, give us the strength to overcome it. That would be the proper way. So it's a very rich concept, and we can't change the words. Okay? All right. We have to take a break. Sorry, we went a little long on that. We'll come back in a couple of minutes. We have Tom calling from North Chicago and others with and some emails. So please stay with us. First of all, I'd just like to uh, ask you to please join me tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with author and apologist Carlo Broussard about the new relativism that is hiding behind so many of today's so-called woke moralists and how to replace their pseudo-commandments with God's directives that can lead us to a life and world of morally and intellectually objective truth rather than something that is more like what I think is a game of Simon Says. You know, they, they keep changing what the moral compass is um, without giving us reasons. So we'll take it. It'll be a good discussion. All right. Let's now go to Tom, who's in North Chicago. Tom, how are you? I'm doing fine, Father. How are you? Fine, thanks. What can we do for you this fine day? Uh, yes, Father. Uh, I have two, two questions. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the first question is kind of a two-parter. Uh, what do you think of members of the LGBT community going to the church to receive in the body of Christ 
and also bringing the gifts to the altar and having permission to open the sacristy where the body of Christ is stored. That's the first question. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, uh, what do you think about communion being given out without a Mass and also without a priest being present? Okay, uh, that's uh, more than two questions. <laughs> first of all, I am 100% in favor of LGBTQ people receiving our blessed Lord in Holy Communion, but under the same conditions as heterosexual people or any or celibate people or any people. We all have to receive communion in the state of sanctifying grace. We can't be in mortal sin without confessing that sin and seeking to repent. So I, you know, the sexual issues are not something that would prevent them going to Holy Communion. People have to deal with a lot of issues. But just as with um, a married man, he can't, you know, he has to be in a state of sanctifying grace and, you know, making sure that there's no mortal sin, hasn't broken any of God's commandments, and if has, go, go to confession first and then receive. And the same would be true with um, anybody bringing up the gifts and, and other service at church. Uh, if they're in the state of grace, that's what counts. You know, you want your, your service at church to be a service that is based on God's grace, filled with his, his grace. And, you know, we can't let our, any of our mortal sins. And then as far as the masks, you know, um, I, I don't know why people are doing that anymore. Um, you know, for one thing, it, it's, you know, the, the, the Center for Disease Control has gone all over the place on this. And increasingly, the data says that the masks cannot stop a virus. The, a virus is too small to be blocked by a mask. If you had a mask that could stop a virus from being breathed out through it, you would suffocate because viruses are smaller than bacteria. They're really, really tiny. Uh, that would be like trying to stop, uh, trying to use a fishing net to stop fleas from going back and forth on the two sides. So, you know, it, it, I, I mean, some people may feel more confident about that, and maybe if they're coughing or something like that, they can do it, but it's not necessary to wear a mask and doesn't apparently seem to be scientific. I remember Dr. Fauci said masks don't help. Later on, he said they do help. Then he said there are two masks. And then others said, no, the masks don't help. He was right the first time. So, you know, uh, but people want to wear them. I guess they can, but, you know, it, it doesn't, I wouldn't make it any kind of a sine qua non. All right, we have another caller. Hello, Christopher is calling from the great state of Ohio. What can we do for you? 
Hello, Father Mitch. Uh, in the Old Testament, I read the words God and Lord, which are translated from the words Yahweh and Jehovah. Is there anything we can learn from these words in relation to how we understand and express ourselves to God, the Holy mm -hmm. Trinity, and to Jesus, who has so many different titles? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, uh, the, the Hebrew words do have meaning. And I'm going to be a little technical. Uh, uh, first of all, God in Hebrew is Elohim. And sometimes they'll translate the divine name as God, but when it's the Lord God. So when you have Adonai Yahweh, then they'll say Lord God instead of Lord, Lord. Um, uh, but that's you know, the name, and the divine name itself, and, and this, again, this is really technical, um, but it is a third person, masculine, singular, subjunctive, hyphial form of the verb to be. Now, what does that all mean? It would best be translated, he, or, he will, or let him cause it to be. Let him cause it to be. It's not just, I am who I am. That's another word. That's asher which is part of the explanation of the divine name. But the divine name itself would be a, a very old form of the, uh, of the causative uh, aspect of the verb, and it means he will cause it to be or let him cause it to be. And it shows that God is the one that causes all of existence to be. That's at the very core of the name. If you want a little bit of background on that, there is a commentary on Exodus by Dr. Martin Note, N-O-T-H, Martin Note. He was a superb German scholar. Uh, in fact, he was put in a concentration camp himself. Uh, fine, fine man. And uh, he has a good note. I don't agree with him a lot of things, but he's got that down very well. And it's in the, the chapter three of Exodus section on his commentary on Exodus. It's really a good discussion of the meaning of the name. All right, then we have another email from Ken in Northwest Florida. Well, a lot of folks don't know this, but that's the hilly part of Florida. But anyway, it says, Father Mitch, the books of Maccabees and some Catholic Bibles appears as the last book of the Old Testament, while in other Catholic Bibles, it appears between the books of Esther and Job. Why the difference? That's, that's an editorial difference. You know, the editors made a difference on keeping some of the historical books together. So even when it's between Esther and Job, it, Job is the first of the wisdom books, and it's usually put first in the Hebrew Bible and so on. But Maccabees is the last of the historical books. It records the last events 
of the Old Testament. It takes the reader up to about 140 B.C. That's where, sec, uh, where First Maccabees ends. Second Maccabees, even though it's, it's the second Maccabee book, it's actually about uh, events that happened uh, 20 years earlier than that. So First Maccabees ends around 140, and uh, uh, Second Maccabees is from events that took place in the 170s B.C. Okay, so um, that's why it's there. And it's just, do you keep it with the, uh, the, the books that are the historical books, or do you take it with, um, you know, the books that were the last ones written? That's the other thing that they do. Sometimes they just put it, well, that's one of the last books written. So they just put it at the end. And I'll just say this, 1 Maccabees was composed in Hebrew, and a Hebrew copy of it was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, while 2 Maccabees was actually composed in Greek in the city of Alexandria among the Jews that lived there. So it's just, that it, it tells more stories. But one of the things, just as the Old Testament and the New Testament both came to a conclusion, so do we. We have to bring this to an end. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can bring you this program and the other programs, uh, all the different guests that we have, only because this network is brought to you by you and your support for us. So we ask that you please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless. Mm -hmm.